Peter 3, verse 1 to 6. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of, of gold jewelry or clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her child, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Thank you. Getting set up here. Let's pray as we uh, look into God's word this morning. Lord God, as we uh, come before you and as we come to your word, uh, there's, cha- there's passages in your word that uh, are particularly challenging. Challenging in the face of culture and challenging in the face of our own will and our own pride uh, and our worship. And so, uh, Jesus... We come humbly this morning, I come humbly this morning asking that you would uh, actually have your will and do your will here this morning and amongst us, in our hearts, uh, as we learn from your word and try to understand what your word is actually showing us and teaching us. So Lord, as we look into this scripture, I pray that uh, the the truth about you would set people free uh, and uh, that we can freely worship you, that we can freely be the men and women uh, that you actually call us to be. So I ask that your Holy Spirit would be very much alive and active here this morning uh, in our hearts, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Last week, if you weren't here, um, I got to preach uh, this particular scripture, but we didn't stop at verse 6. We actually went into verse 7 and talked about what it meant for a husband and what it looks like for a husband uh, to love his wife and honour his wife. And uh, somehow I tried to set the context um, back right back in the root of creation, where uh, men and women were created in the image of God. I'm going to get to that a little bit today, but uh, what I wanted to start with is first to introduce myself, if those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Nathan Gilmore, and uh, like Pete said, I've been part of the church plant since last July, um, not the one just gone, the one last year, and, uh, and I've actually been married for eight years, and I don't say that to try and spread how good I am. No, uh, I actually want, to see, want people to see that the grace of God has been very good and, uh, and that is the reason why we've been married for eight years. Uh, my, wife, <clears throat> my wife is an amazing wife and, uh, and that hasn't come with its challenges along the way. As anyone who would know who is married, uh, married life comes with challenges because it's two imperfect people coming together where they clash and cut across each other's will. Um, If my testimony is worth anything today, uh, our testimony would be that it's most apparent that as we've opened the Bible together and sought out what marriage actually is all about, it's actually through this that we've become the most free and happy within our marriage. So as we've actually sought what God's will is, God, what do you want for us in our marriage? What is it that you, uh, why are we actually married together? Is it just about love? Uh, Is it just so that we can enjoy sexual intimacy? Is it just so that... uh, I get my identity from my marriage. Well, no, uh, it's actually so much more than that, which we're going to get into. Uh, So we've actually been the most free and happy in our marriage when we've done that. On the contrary, 
where we actually stray away and when we don't open the word, where we actually stray away and uh, become much more individuals, uh, it's then that we actually begin to argue and it's then when the tense, tense air becomes so thick that you can literally come in and slice it. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm sure if you're married or in any relationship, I mean, there's things that happen that become tense. And most of the time it's because we actually stray away from our design and worship of God. The big point is this. When you follow Christ, you get transformed. Any person sitting here today, when you follow Christ, you get transformed. You get transformed into his image. And when we come to this particular area of marriage, uh, we actually get to pursue his image and the way he actually designed marriage to be. This is what you get to pursue and by God's grace become, whether you are married or not married. So last week I talked about husbands and the high calling of husbands to uh, love their wives and particularly men to be strong and to be protectors and to honour their wives, uh, not dishonour them. And I went through about eight or nine uh, different ways that you could honour your wife. Um, there was a whole bunch. If you wanted to go back there, uh, the, the sermon's up on the website. And it's within that context that we actually understand what a wife submitting to her husband looks like. Um, and, and it's so important to understand this because I think culturally what has happened is that this whole idea of submission has been completely distorted and twisted and gets messed up. And so because of that, uh, we tend to not even want to go near it. Even though the Bible uses the word, even though we understand that uh, the Bible uses it, uh, we just don't even want to go there. And my hope today is that we'll actually understand the context of a wife submitting to her husband and that her husband is actually meant to be doing something just as equally, equally important as uh, the wife submitting. Uh, typically, I've heard it in my lifetime joked about uh, where a wife submits to her husband as if she's under the thumb. Her husband's there, she's under, uh, under his thumb and she's doing whatever he wants her to do, uh, which isn't submission at all, which isn't leading at all. The call for a man is to actually love his wife and honour her as Christ loved his church. What did he do? Christ came and died. He sacrificed, he laid down his life so that his bride could become beautiful. So his bride could become all that she was meant to be. <clears throat> the culture defines way too much for us. Since the inception of the project, we've been aiming to redefine reality according to the Bible. And so we don't just come to a subject like uh, husbands and wives and marriage and all those things. Uh, we don't just come to it as a one-off thing. We, from the beginning of the project, have been working hard at trying to redefine reality according to what the Bible says. Consider with me what we've looked at. The glory of God. We've looked at the glory of God in a secular culture that strongly urges the glory of man. And we want to redefine that because that's not the way God designed it. We want God to be the most glorious. The grand story of God in a secular culture that strongly believes in the grand story of me. We want to redefine that. We don't want us to be the centre of our big story. We want to be part of God's greater story. We've looked at biblical counselling in a secular culture that counsels according to the understanding of man. We want to counsel according to the word of God because we believe it has high authority, uh, the highest authority within the church uh, belonging to Jesus. We've looked at pleasure in God in a secular culture that strongly urges pleasure in only entertainment and created things. Pleasure is not a bad thing. It's just where it's channeled. We want pleasure to be holy and solely in God. And we're meant to pleasure. We're meant to delight in things, but not in created things only. They're not meant to be our highest and greatest pleasure. 
We've looked at Jesus as the only saviour in a secular culture that strongly urges every other saviour but Jesus. Food as a saviour, a husband as a saviour, a wife as a saviour, children as a saviour, drugs, alcohol, whatever it is, pornography. We want all these things to be our saviour and we've tried to redefine that so that Jesus would truly be shown to be the only saviour and the greatest saviour. And so we come to sections of the Bible like this that are highly controversial according to secular culture and we don't want to shy away from them but rather dig deep into them to work out what it is that God wants to teach us through them. And so that's what we're doing today. Uh, and I want to do this well and I pray that, uh, that it would come across in such a way that would be really helpful for us, for us actually understanding uh, what our call is to image God well. So let's take a look at, uh, at equality for a start. In every sense of our human nature, we are equal as men and women. Before God, whether Christian or not Christian, men and women were designed and were created equal. Equal in their worth, their value, their dignity. Have a look at uh, Galatians 3.28 up here. Man and woman are equal. There is neither Jew nor Greek. That means race and uh, background isn't, doesn't necessarily come into the equation when we come before God. We come together equally. Whether I'm from Africa, Australia, America, New Zealand, wherever it is, we come before God equally. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And the call here is, uh, the, the context, sorry, is that it's abundantly clear the sense in which men and women are equal in Christ. They are equally justified by faith. They are equally free from the bondage of legalism. They are equally children of God and equally clothed with Christ. Equally possessed by Christ and equally heirs of the promises to Abraham. That's what you'll read if you read the rest of Galatians there. So we're equally coming before God and our salvation does not depend on whether we're a male or a female. A man does not get saved over a female. No, a man and a woman get saved equally before God. Justified. Made his own. We are all equally children of God when we come and we follow Jesus. From the creation of man and woman and the fall, it's clear that we're both actually equal. Paul's regulations for how husbands and wives relate to each other in marriage do assume the goodness of the institution of marriage, and not only to its goodness, but also its foundation in the will of the Creator from the beginning of time. Moreover, in locating the foundation of marriage in the will of God at creation, Paul does so in a way that shows this, that his regulations for marriage also, also flow from this order of creation. So in other words, we get our order, we get our roles as a man and a woman and a husband and a wife rooted right back into creation. So it's not just some new idea that uh, Paul came up with. No, this was something foundational in where God designed the world. He created men and then he created woman from the man to be his helper and uh, that, that man would take leadership, sacrificial, loving leadership and that that woman would lovingly learn to submit. And, uh, and again, we come together equally before God, but very different. Different in our roles as male and female. It's interesting that uh, sometimes I think today equality somehow gets uh, misconstrued uh, to make every person identical, which isn't actually equality. Equality is not where two people come together and become identical. Equality is where two people come and have actual equal standing. And I'm going to talk about that in a moment. Think about, uh, we, we talked in our community group on uh, Tuesday night about a football team 
uh, which some women are just going, football team? You chose football team as an analogy? Anyway, uh, a football team, every person on that football team has different roles. But they're equally as important on that football team for that football team to do a good job and to go well in the competition. So if a fullback became identical to a forward, they wouldn't get the ball up, up the front. <laughs> they would, that, they'd lose the ball. Every time the ball was kicked deep, the fullback wouldn't be there because he's up the front. They'd become identical. And it's, it's in a similar way. Think about a workplace, a, uh, an organisation. An organisation goes well where there's different people in authority that would actually lead and their role is to lead. And there'd be workers who'd work hard under their leader. And so equally, they're equal in that organisation. But man, they have different roles and jobs to do. And so we come uh, similarly in the way that we uh, understand marriage. Think about its purpose from the beginning. The overarching purpose of marriage is to bring glory to God. So when I talk about uh, a woman today, a wife, submitting to her husband... The point is that you are all, as a man and a woman, as a wife, as a husband, we are all called to bring glory to God. Every person. And the point of marriage is that we would image the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. So this doesn't become about women's rights. This doesn't become about men's rights. This becomes about we're actually here to image someone else. We're part of a much grander, much greater picture here. And that is to glorify God. Our marriages are designed to glorify God and to point to him, not to point to ourselves. So, uh, so consider with me uh, submission. Before we go there, last week I looked at uh, some extremes that people tend to go to. And to the extreme left, uh, we have this idea that all is one. And this, is, uh, this is, would be the call the effeminate left. This is where men get weakened and women get defeminized so that men and women become identical. This is where the identical thing comes in, and uh, men and women must be identical. So it's no longer just being equal, it's about being identical. So that women can do anything a man can do, a man can do anything a woman can do, but just have different plumbing, basically. Uh, egalitarianism, then, if you keep coming across, is removing or denying many differences between men and women. So here, in society, same-sex marriages get approved. Uh, mutual submission usually means uh, husband becomes wimp and wife becomes usurper of power and authority. But then you keep coming to the extreme right and uh, over here there's two other sections. You've got male dominance which is where the males overemphasize the difference between men, between men and women. So men are better than women and excessive competitiveness show women as inferior. Husbands become harsh selfish dictators. You do what I want you to do no questions asked, because I'm the man in authority here. I'm the leader, which isn't really leadership at all. And the wife tends to become a doormat. Then you keep pushing further and further down that line, and uh, you've got the violent right. Might makes right. I'm strong, so I'm going to be right. <laughs> I don't care what you say. Uh, men become brutes. Women become objects. And uh, the dehumanisation of women becomes hugely apparent. Think about our uh, current proposal for a strip club. The design for a man was never to make a woman an object for his entertainment. That's not seeing women and men as equal. God's design for a man and a woman is that they would uh, look at each other as equals, equally before God, not as some object that a man gets to rule over and tell what he wants her to do. Uh, 
you don't want to, I read some articles this week about the strip clubs and uh, particularly some of the details of what happens in strip clubs. It is just a mess and it is not equal. It is not the way God designed men and women to behave together. No way. No way. And you can see this is where that particular section of culture becomes this violent right when men dominate over women and objectify them. So instead, uh, where I want to head today is uh, similarly to last week of this idea of being complementary. That a man and a woman created equally before God in the image of God were designed to be complementary in their roles. They were meant to complement each other. Back to the uh, football analogy. The fullback is meant to complement the, fu- the full forward. And they're meant to do their roles in very particular ways and get the job done. In the same way, a husband and a wife are meant to complement each other as they fulfill the call of God uh, in their lives. So the husband and wife are equal in their value, worth and dignity and work in a complementary fashion in the God-designed roles that they've been given. That being, the husbands being the head, lovingly, sacrificially, humbly leading their wives and family and wives submitting to their, to their husbands as helper. So have a look at uh, that verse 1 in uh, 1 Peter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. This whole context of 1 Peter is actually within the context. It says likewise there at the beginning, because men and women are all meant to submit. A man in in a marriage relationship, a husband in a marriage relationship, submits himself to God. Because that's the call of every person. The call of every Christian is to submit. The call of a Christian is also to submit to their government, except in sin, like we're opposing right now in Toowoomba. We're meant to submit to to those in authority. The church has specific structures that have authority where uh, people are meant to submit. Not out of a, like I said, a male-dominant right view where males are strong and brute, so we get to rule over everyone. We get a position of power. No, no, no. So it's about a sacrificial love for people that we want to lead them in the direction that God has for us. So thinking about this word submission, uh, it came up particularly in our uh, home group on Tuesday and submission and the word submit seems to be um, well and truly messed up and distorted. Uh, <clears throat> and it has all sorts of neg- negative connotations to it. My belief is that the Bible uses it Culture and sin have distorted it and it actually needs to be redefined. So we understand submission because the Bible uses it. We understand submission based on what God's standard is. My concern in using other language, in taking the word submit out and trying to work out another name, is that uh, we would tend to become like the Bible talks about the Galatians who only hear what their itching ears want to hear and don't actually hear or can't handle the uh, sometimes confronting truth in scripture. So take a look at this definition. Uh, I took this again from a uh, guy called John Piper. He's done extensive work on this whole area of biblical manhood and womanhood. Um, him and some other guys, I've quoted him a couple of times today, so, uh, uh, or I will be quoting him a couple of times. So here you go, submission redefined. Submission refers to a wife's divine calling to honour and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. It is not an absolute surrender of her will. It's the disposition to follow her husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. 
It's an attitude that says, I'd delight for you to take the initiative in our family. I'm glad when you take responsibility for things and lead with love. I don't flourish in the relationships when you're passive, sorry, in the relationship when you are passive and I have to make sure the family works. So this would be, a, uh, I think, a really healthy view of submission. And I'm going to continue to unfold that as we, uh, as we look at submission now. Wives, submit to your own husbands. They, uh, they coined the phrase joyful, intelligent submission. Culturally, if we think about submission, maybe some of us think submission. Ugh. I've got to drag myself to submit to my husband. I've got to drag myself to submit to any authority in my life. Such a drag, far out. People coming across me. What's the deal with that? No, it's actually an uh, opportunity for joyful and intelligent. Women are very capable. Women are very intelligent. And that is not what we're on about. But they're actually coming in submission. Why? Because it's the call uh, to be that within a marriage. Ephesians 5, verse 22 to 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Notice it uses own husband. So your submission, wives, to your husband is different to the submission you will display in a church where there's positions and roles of authority. It's different to the, the submission you're going to display to, uh, to the government. It's dis- different to the submission you're going to display uh, within uh, a workplace, if you're in a workplace. So this submission in particular is very unique and special for within the marriage context. So wives, your call is to submit to your own husband, not to every man, not to every man in this way. As to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This is a high calling because you're actually displaying the glory of God. Same way a man's, man displays the glory of God as he fulfills his role to lovingly, sacrificially lead his wife. So a wife displays the glory of God as she lovingly, joyfully, intelligently submits to her husband. So it gives this grand vision, much grander than just, I have to submit far out. The Bible's telling me I've got to do something I don't want to do. No, it's a grand vision. You get to glorify Christ. This is where meaning comes. This is where full life comes as you fulfill this area. So I'm going to look at a few things that submission is not and then uh, work towards what submission is. So that will happen throughout. So number one, submission does not mean silence in either word or thought. Submission does not mean silence in either word or thought. Uh, Even for a godly husband who leads you well, your call is not to sit silent like a doormat and just do everything he says. Your call is to have intelligence. Your call is to uh, be, be submissive as you, uh, as you work through that. Wives who are more intelligent or have stronger leadership skills than their husband can still fulfill that, can still be intelligent, can still have strong leadership s- skills, but actually be in submission to their husband. We're going to talk about in a, wa- in a moment how this happens. This doesn't uh, negate a wife or a woman's competence as an intelligent person. So a woman submitting to her husband doesn't negate that a woman may have three degrees and her husband doesn't. 
that a woman may be more intelligent or may have better thinking ability and skills to be able to work things out. may mean this, but that can actually still function really healthily within this God-designed idea of a wife submitting to her husband. <clears throat> so submission, submission is not based on the assumption that a woman is morally or intellectually incompetent. Maybe some of you might be asking, so how do I submit when I don't agree? Because this will tend to happen naturally because a woman has intelligence and we don't want a woman just to become this uh, unintelligent. Um, <laughs> we don't want that. We don't want to squash that. We want women to be pursuing a deep theology. We want women to be pursuing a deep understanding of God. We want women to be working, working well within the society uh, doing what God's called them to do. So we don't want that. So uh, how do you actually submit when you don't agree? Firstly, uh, one area you shouldn't submit in is if your husband's calling you to sin. If your husband is calling you to sin, you shouldn't submit because your first call is to submit to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ would never call you to sin and go further into that. No, instead a wife can, uh, can humbly come to her husband uh, if it's not a sin but just your personal preference or disagreement, your calling as a wife is to be submissive to the church, as the church submits to Christ. So that's your primary f- focus. You come and you think, what's my call here as a wife? My call is to submit to my husband, so how am I going to do that? A couple of suggestions. When you've considered your calling, pray. Just as a husband who would want to love his wife and lead his wife well would need to pray. He prays deeply. He prays long. He prays hard. How can I do this well? I'm struggling here, God. So a wife can pray. God, I'm struggling to agree here. Please, I come humbly before you. I bow my knee before you. I need you here, Jesus. Pray before and as you speak to him. Pray about the issue that maybe your heart actually needs to change. Just the same way as a husband, when his wife would approach him, may need to go, God, maybe I need to change here. So a wife submitting to her husband, pray before and as you speak and about the issue in case your heart needs to be changed. Approach your husband and lovingly acknowledge that you love when he takes initiative to lead and make decisions for the family, but that in this decision, you'd like to speak further about it. A little practical help that I read about and that probably uh, my wife sometimes does well and sometimes doesn't do well. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes it's like straight in the face and maybe you can identify with that. And we come against each other. We have an argument. Uh, and then other times you work it out and go, okay, when's the best time to talk about this? I need to talk about it. Let's come together and uh, let's talk about it. So she might say, let's talk about it after the kids go to bed. Or she might say, um, I've got some other thinking about that, some other ideas. Uh, and husbands, it's our job to welcome that, to say, you know what? Absolutely. I want to hear from you. If you've got other ideas, if you think God's calling you or leading you in a different area, then let's talk about it. Let's work this out. <clears throat> and sometimes it will mean that uh, wives, because this is the role of the husband, that it will be your call to submit to his decision making. Even though you've offered your opinion, your ideas, and uh, your husband's going, no, this is where I think God's calling us, this is what I think God's doing. It's not just going to be a slap, quick decision from a husband. Husbands, <laughs> that's not our call either. We're going to be prayerfully considering it. It's not just going to be a uh, slap, happy decision. It may look a little bit like Jesus. I talked last week a little bit about Jesus in the uh, Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus, 
has joyful submission. He has intelligent submission. Because he doesn't just say, okay, God, doesn't matter what I feel, doesn't matter how I feel, I'm just going to go and do this anyway. It's not a begrudging submission. It's a joyful, it's intelligent. He says, God, if there is any way, he expresses his emotion, his feeling before God, if there is any way you can take this suffering and this cup away from me, please, please do it. But again, not my will, but your will be done. So they ultimately became this submission and, uh, and it was intelligent and ultimately his dad, from the, the beginning of creation, his design was that Jesus would go through with it. Men are going to get decisions wrong and wives are going to get decisions wrong. And the way we deal with that is through the gospel. We'll talk about that at the end. Submission is not keeping him happy at all costs. Submission is not silently sitting by and letting him play his life away with all his toys while he neglects to truly lead you. You're not being loving while you do this. In the same way as a parent who would allow their child to walk out onto the road and to play on the road wouldn't be loving in doing that just because they want to have fun and they want to, you want to keep the, the child happy. No way, you don't want to do that. Not with your children. That's a dangerous place to go. All right? Uh, so, so wives... Your husband is not ultimate in, uh, in their authority. So you submit to Christ and, uh, and you don't just let him, uh, let him continue playing on. Talk about how that happens in a moment. Where he is abusing you. Maybe there's husbands sitting here today or you know of husbands and men who abuse their wives physically, verbally, whatever the case may be. It's not a wife's job to sit like a silent doormat and submit to that. No way. We need to get authority into, uh, in, into play. This is why God set up authority within the church. If it's physical abuse, we need to call the police and deal with that. That can't just be let sat, sat aside and, uh, and let happen. Maybe it's actually raising it with the church leadership so that the church discipline can be carried out uh, upon the men. So, uh, so how, do you, how do you actually lead your husband? It's a bit like that attitude right back at the very beginning uh, which talked about uh, here's a direction I'm going uh, for the husband and the wife knows that that's not a good direction and so she does the work within the household says I don't want to defy you but I really would love it if you would come and follow Christ with me and actually work hard towards doing that submission is not just external <clears throat> submission is not outwardly saying okay I'll agree with your decision but inwardly Next time it's my turn, I'm going to make the call. <laughs> that wouldn't be what submission is either. Wives, be aware of submitting on the outside, while all the while on the inside you're storing up resentment and seeking repayment in return for your submission. So if I give you the choice this time, I'm going to get the choice next time. You just wait. <laughs> I'll get my chance. I'll get my position. I'll get my authority. Uh, so instead, uh, submission is an internal attitude of the heart. So check, wives, when you uh, are submitting to your husband, check, is this imaging Christ and his bride, the church, well? Or is this just like a repayment scheme where I get my bit in the end? Again, we come back to the call of glorifying God. Come back to the call of glorifying God. When your husband is not a Christian, this is poignant because... uh, Sometimes a couple will get married and neither will be Christians and at some point 
a wife will become a Christian and a husband will not be a Christian. Even though he may have heard the gospel before, even though he may have uh, heard about God before, um, there's a call here. You're a wife on mission. So preach a wordless sermon. A wordless sermon. Got this idea from a guy called Mark Driscoll and I think it's a, uh, a really great little analogy. When you become a Christian and your husband is not, maybe he's had enough of you asking him to go to church and telling him about Jesus. So maybe you're that sort of person who's like, oh, you just need to hear about it. Come on, why don't, you, why don't you listen? Why don't you read the Bible with me? I'm praying for you. All these things. Uh, instead, what, Paul, what Peter's suggesting is let your actions, you're submitting to him, you're loving him, you're serving him and you're encouraging him, actually speak louder than your words. And this is the call. I mean, if you think missionally for any person sitting in this room today, this is the call missionally. It's not the only call because sometimes even a wife will be called to speak and to, to talk about Jesus with her husband. But there will be most times where anyone sitting in this room on mission will be called to act and to serve and that people would know us by our good works and that they would actually glorify God in heaven. So it wouldn't be about us, but it would actually be glorifying God in heaven. And what an inside privileged position it is to be a wife with a husband who doesn't know Jesus for you to be on mission right in your own home. What, a, uh, what a, an amazing opportunity you have to love and to serve him and that he would be won over by your actions. This is an amazing privilege. Keep going through. Uh, Verse 2 says this, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewellery or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is precious. So think about this. Peter's not prohibiting altogether outward adornment because if he did, he'd have to prohibit clothing and we don't want to go there. That's not what Peter's suggesting here. He's not prohibiting outward adornment altogether. Instead, it's actually right for a woman to look beautiful and to spend some time doing it. But we actually all know that we're creatures of worship. We're people who worship. And sometimes our worship can be our outward identity and our outward adornment. And so we spend money, we spend time, we spend effort uh, for particularly women. I think it's becoming apparent for men as well, but particularly women Uh, on their external and outward beauty. Paul writes to Timothy uh, later on in uh, 1 or 2 Timothy and encouraged the women who follow Jesus to adorn themselves. You should adorn yourselves, but to do it sensibly and with modesty to reflect the purity of the one whom you have been called. So older women, before I go there, you'd be aware that our culture has an infatuation with external appearance, including models posing for magazines with no airbrushing, the Biggest Loser, Dieting, Eating Disorders, Actresses Receiving 10 Plastic Surgeries Within a Week. I read that in a magazine one time, just going, hey, yeah, yeah. This infatuation with external adornment um, is, is over, over the top, particularly in our Western culture. Uh, it can also be seen the rapid rate of divorce among actress, actresses and actors. Some of the most attractive men and women, if outward adornment was really the most important thing, our culture holds highly actresses and act- actors and actresses as people who would be outwardly adorned amazingly. That's what our culture would, would say is the most uh, beautiful people. And they hold up. He's the top ten most sexy people in, uh, in, 
in today, in 2012, whatever. But the interesting thing is if outward adornment were all that mattered, these marriages would actually be much more likely to succeed, wouldn't they? Because outward adornment and looking at my husband or looking at my wife would be the most important thing. Their, their beauty, their physical beauty, the way they dress, uh, the way they shape their body, uh, that would be the most important. And if that was it, then marriages would succeed. But what Peter's saying here is, is that that's not it. That's not all there is to being beautiful as a wife or as a woman. Outward adornment is not it. It becomes a worship issue. So mums, grandmas, widows, sisters, aunties, men, dads, fathers, please, please teach our young girls the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Why? Because beauty changes. The woman you marry on the day that you get married will change because their outward adornment changes. That's just what happens with the human body, right? The goal at the moment within our culture is that uh, women who are older would aim to be younger because they don't want to change. They don't want their outward body to change. So they aim to be younger and they work out, how can I, uh, how can I be young again? And from a biblical perspective, Peter's saying, no, 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 that's not what matters. It's not what matters most. It's actually the inner beauty. So for you as a woman, it's right that you would work on having an inner beauty that would pervade out of your outer beauty. It, it doesn't really leave much chance. If, if outward adornment was all there is, it doesn't leave much chance for the unattractive female, right? There's no chance for her because she's not outwardly adorned very well. But if you actually focus on the inner beauty, which is what God's calling women to do, focus on inner beauty, the gentle and the quiet spirit, there's a chance for every woman there to be beautiful. And that was the design. That was the way it was meant to be. So in all of this, am I saying don't worry about physical beauty? No, I'm not saying that at all. A wife should look beautiful for her husband. A woman should look beautiful. I think that was part of God's design as well. Adam, when he first saw Eve, what was it? he wrote a poem, he wrote a love song. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So pleased, God, I'm so pleased you brought her to me. Just love her. She's amazing. That was the way it was meant to be, designed to be. <clears throat> Older women and younger women, whether you're married or not here today, are these the characteristics you'll find if you look deep in your heart? And perhaps if someone did an assessment of you, if you were to get together with another woman, uh, maybe if you were to ask your husband if you're married, um, would these be the things that you, you find? A gentle and a quiet spirit. This character and attitude of the heart will come out in your relationship of submission to your husband. He'll love it and be so attracted to it. Finally, whose side, uh, in this section, sorry, whose side is most important in your marriage? Look at the end of verse 2 there. <clears throat> the end of verse 2. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is precious. So for a woman or for a man, whose sight is most important within your marriage? And if it is God's sight that's most important, he'll be so pleased with his daughter when he sees her working for this beautiful, inner, quiet, gentle spirit. 
Then Peter goes on to talk about how this comes about. I think these two verses are particularly connected. Uh, So go to verse 5 and 6a. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. So imagine a woman adorning herself with uh, clothing, with makeup, uh, with beautiful hair. This is what the, uh, the, the holy women, the women who were called by God, were part of his family, this is how they used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. They hoped in God. A Christian woman does not get her hope from her husband or in getting a husband or in her looks. Rather, her hope is deeply rooted in God and his many promises and faithful character. So I wonder if you ask the question, uh, are you as a wife uh, getting your hope from your husband? Has he become this ultimate source of all things happiness, of all things spiritual, uh, of all that you need? Because he will let you down. Any husband is fallible. He isn't Jesus. And he will let you down. So instead, the invitation is, come and put your hope in God. Come and put your hope in God. It's there that you won't fear. It's there that you won't be, uh, be afraid. So hoping in God. Her hope does not fade with bleak outlook of the future. Rather, she knows God's word, has a solid theology of God's sovereign purposes and understands the gospel. Your beauty comes as you get deeper and deeper in love with God. And as your hope in him soars higher and higher, as your faith in him grows, as your understanding of the word grows, that will be beauty that pervades out of you. And I hope that in the project here, we would begin to uh, build this culture where this is the beauty of women that this would be uh, the glory of a man doing his job and lovingly, sacrificially leading his wife and children. And that this would be the beauty of a woman who hopes in God, who worships God, and who de- deepens her relationship with God and understanding of the word. Seeking the wisdom of older godly women. Read books by older godly women who know what it means to teach younger women with wisdom. The reason Peter goes back is because these women have set the pace in the Old Testament Sarah submitting to Abraham and adorning herself with such beauty. Uh, is, it, that set the pace. It sort of set the standard throughout for a woman, uh, what a woman could be like. And there's hope there. Interestingly, Sarah submitted sometimes when she probably shouldn't have. She submitted when her husband asked her to be, a, uh, asked her, to be her sister so that she would actually go and uh, become one of the wives of the king. And that became really messy. All right? And... And I think there's hope there because when a, a wife's submission won't always be perfect, nor will a man's leadership always be perfect. And this is where we actually find hope in the gospel. This is where we find hope in the gospel. So look to older women and older godly women. There's people who have written books, women who've read, written books, and they provide amazing wisdom. Look for older godly women within the church who are going to help you and who are going to serve in uh, bringing about this beauty. Fearlessness. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is terrifying. A woman should be fearless. Culturally, think about fearlessness. 
if dudes going out and doing stupid stuff, trying to be fearless in the face of whatever they're, gonna, they're about to do. Isn't that a weird thing? And uh, it has no good for anyone but themselves. <laughs> that would be uh, usually what fearlessness is and what young, young boys and young, uh, young, I'll call them young boys as well, 25, 30-year-old young boys who are going out and expressing, I'm fearless, I'm strong, look at what I can do. I don't, I'm not scared of jumping out of a plane. I'm not scared of whatever jumping off a roof into a pool and axing myself. I'm not scared. And this fearlessness comes out of their own ego, ego and their own pride. The fearlessness that I think that, is, uh, that's, Peter is talking about here is a fearless quietness and a gentleness that overflow from a heart that knows God and runs deep in his word. A man becomes fearless when he actually trusts something greater than himself. So also a woman becomes fearless in the way that she leads her family, in the way that she expresses herself within her family and within her marriage, sorry, her marriage as her faith and her, deep, her, her understanding of God actually runs deep, deep, deep. And it's rooted deep in his word, knows his limitless power and his limitless love that covers over a multitude of sins. So fight your fear with faith. What is it that you fear? What is it that a wife in particular could fear? Maybe it's that her husband won't lead, so she just needs to get the job done. Maybe your wife would fear that her husband uh, is, is abusive, and so she'll just sit quiet like a doormat. Remember those two extremes we talked about? And neither is healthy. Neither is healthy. Fear of him making mistakes. Fear that you'll not find a husband. Maybe there's ladies sitting here like that today. The way you deal with fear is by turning to God and actually deepening your understanding, deepening your faith in the promises of God. And let me finish here. Uh, let, your, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is precious. When your hope is in God and not in your husband or finding a husband. When your hope is in God and not in external beauty alone. When you fight your fear with faith in the unshakable promises of God, there actually comes an inner tranquility of a gentle and quiet spirit. And this indeed is actually really precious. This is so precious. And this actually helps you as a woman to fulfill your calling as a woman and as a wife to submit to your husband. It's out of these characteristics, it's out of these characters that are built by the grace of God and then the de deepening of your relationship with God that uh, true and healthy submission comes. Maybe there's still this question though. What if my husband is neglecting to love and lead in such a way that I can submit? Because there probably is husbands sitting here like this today. Firstly, I would say husbands, work out what God's calling you to. Work out what God's calling you to. Are you actually leading your wife? Are you actually lovingly, sacrificially leading her spiritually, honouring her physically, providing for her? Are you doing your job? Because when you do your job, men, husbands, a wife submitting will come into context so beautifully. And it will become this complementary puzzle that actually fits together and joins together really well. Beautifully. 
And it's then that a marriage will actually glorify God. So husbands first think it's your job to lead. But where it's not, where it's not happening, another, uh, another quote by Piper. If the husband is there but neglects his responsibility and does not provide leadership for the children, then the mature, feminine mother will make every effort to do so. Yet in a way that says to the husband, I do not defy you, I love you. And I long with all my heart that you are with me in this spiritual and moral commitment, leading me and the family to God. So it's not a defying, I'm against you, I'm opposed to you because you're not doing your job. No, it's actually coming still with the heart of submission, even with the dude that's messing things up. And it's praying. It's coming and saying, oh, I'd love for you to be coming in this direction. Can we sit down and read the word together? Maybe it's talking to people within the church so that uh, there would be some accountability brought about. This is why community is so important. We live in community as a church so that we would be able to fulfill our calls that God has on on our lives, revealed for every person, for every man, for every woman, for every husband, every wife, that we would be able to do that well. That happens in community. Because that's where accountability, that's where we get challenged with the truth and we get to deal with sin through Jesus. This is where it happens. <clears throat> For single women, I'd say this, you should only marry a man you're willing to follow. If you can see that this man is going in a particular direction and you're not willing to follow, don't just marry him because you're desperate to have a husband. That will multiply your difficulties within your marriage tenfold. It would be unwise for you. Instead, marry a man you're willing to follow, not a little boy who hasn't grown up yet. So it would become apparent that a woman and a man would be ready to marry when they become women and men, not when they're teenagers necessarily. If there are mature teenagers, 18, 19-year-olds, who know that, yep, this is where God's calling me as a woman, yep, this is where God's calling me as a man, then maybe you should consider getting married. But marriage was never intended for little boys and girls. Never. It was intended for men and for women who understand that and by God's grace are actually pursuing that. So instead, single ladies, single women, marry a man who will be willing to selflessly, sacrificially love you and lead you. And you'll know that within your relationship before you get married. If you're having to pick up the pieces and lead him and tell him to go and get a job and tell him to go and do what he needs to do, you know that right now he's not a man. And he probably needs other people's help other than you to get, get in and actually learn to be a man. So marry a man you're willing to follow. Finally, I close with this, uh, this state, uh, statement. Two more slides, sorry. Glory. I th- as I was thinking about it, we've, we've talked about glory and the fact that we're actually glory thieves. We like glory for ourselves both men and women. It doesn't matter whether you're a man here, a woman, a husband or a wife, we like glory. And we tend to try and steal it from God. A husband who desires glory in his position will not sacrificially lead and serve his wife, his family, his church or anyone else. He's not going to do that if glory is all about him. Likewise, for a wife who desires glory in her positioning as a wife or as a woman to defy and rule over her husband, submission will be out of the question. Or for a wife who desires to glorify her husband instead of God, submission will be out of the question. 
sorry, a submission would be distorted into becoming silent in a slave-like servitude to a husband. So in any sense where God is not glorified, where God is not central, it'll be messed up. And it won't be everything that God designed it to me. It might still be a good marriage, but it won't be a God-glorifying marriage. In either case, for men or for women, God will not be glorified and the marriage will not reflect the imagery of Christ and his bride, the church. And here's the last quote, and then we'll pray. So I end with the reminder that marriage is not mainly about staying in love. It's about covenant keeping. And the main reason it's about covenant keeping is that God designed the relationship between a a husband and his wife to represent the relationship between Christ and the church. This is the deepest meaning of marriage. And that's why ultimately the roles of headship and submission are so important. If our marriages are going to tell the truth about Christ and his church, we cannot be indifferent to the meaning of headship and submission. We can't just skip over it because our culture doesn't like it. And this has been my hope over these last two weeks, that somehow this would maybe help you to define it, maybe help you to describe it, but hopefully it would actually lead you to search out scripture even deeper than what I've even been able to talk about in 45 minutes and work out this, it's, this is meant to tell a greater story than just marriage. This is meant to tell the great story, the truth about Christ and his church. And let it not go without saying that God's purpose for the church and for the Christian wife who represent it is her everlasting holy joy. Christ died for them to bring that about. It is possible with the appropriate definition of submission, wives, that you would be joyful. Because that's what Christ died to redeem. That you would be intelligent that you and your husband would be equally standing before God, but appropriately fulfilling your roles and your calls as a husband and wife, complementing each other as a husband and wife, and ultimately bringing glory to God, which was the whole design in the first place. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, your word is truth. And this morning, uh, 1 Peter expresses your word Uh, amazingly and really explicitly about what it means for a wife to be a wife and to be submitting to her husband. So I pray today, God, that where culture and where sin has distorted this idea of submission and headship uh, within marriage, God, please redeem it in people's hearts. Pray that they would understand this beautiful thing called submission. I pray that uh, we as a church and that women in particular would be pursuing a beauty that's not just outward adornment. That is beautiful. But God, the, the, the ultra beauty of the inner heart that's gentle and a quiet spirit. God, I pray that where ladies here this morning, where wives are feeling hopeless, that God, they would depend on you. And even in their hopelessness, God, that you would uh, redirect their hope to you not in their situation. Pray that women would lead each other towards Scripture, toward the truth of Scripture and the promises in Scripture that would help to develop this inner beauty. And I pray, God, that marriages within the project and marriages everywhere, even though under attack from our culture, that we would see our high calling to display Christ and His church and to glorify you. So by your grace, bring about change. By your grace, bring about confronting truth, 
that would help us realize where we sin and where we fall short so that we can turn to you, Jesus, and be redeemed and be made new again. Pray this in your name. Amen.